Welcome to the official SBGAN podcast, hosted by Dr. Alex Nicely. When we're talking about tires, automobile tires, we call them retreads. When we talk about Jake Mann, it's an encore. He was interviewed in the SBGAN podcast some while ago, and he's back again to tell us what he told his audience in Vienna in May of 2023 about how common non-pathogenic variants in genes from monogenic disorders in children may confer additional risk of liver injury later in life, that is, in adulthood. He's studied associations of biomarkers that can be used to track hepatobiliary disease and attempted to pair them with the incidence of particular gene variants. Have I got that right? Absolutely, yeah. Well, I never... Well, thank you for that. That may be as close as I come to understanding what's actually going on. Tell us about the study population and the tools that you applied. So, essentially, the population and the tools are all completely freely available. So, in one sense, this was an exceptionally easy piece of work to do. You can just go to the internet and download all the data. The study is actually based on healthy or supposedly healthy adults who are not known to have any particular monogenic disease or any severe um, comorbidities. They may have um, obesity or um, type 2 diabetes, um, but they, they shouldn't be known to have a cholestatic disorder. And these are very large population studies that have been used for GWASs in the past. So in total, there's data from about one and a half million people. And broadly, you can just look up common variants in their genes. By common, I mean usually about 5% of the population have one of these variants or more. And the association between any of those variants and frequently measured biochemical traits like bilirubin or alkaline phosphatase. And you found that persons with variants not commonly understood as pathogenic, that is, not associated with disease manifestations in early life, are out there in increased frequency in persons with biomarkers that mean something is rumbling around in the liver or the biliary tract. Very nearly. So we weren't able to, uh, we haven't yet shown that individuals with liver disease, such as people with cirrhosis as adult, um, have increased frequency of those gene variants. What we've been able to show is that those gene variants are linked to higher levels of ALT, for example. But what's interesting, or what we feel is interesting, is that we know that generally these genes, uh, when they are completely disrupted by severe rare mutations, cause major problems in childhood, such as recurrent acute liver failure or the progressive familial intrahepatic cholestasis disorders. But we're looking at common variants which don't disrupt the whole protein or are thought not to disrupt the whole protein, but still apparently have an effect what we're doing is moving 
out into the ultraviolet, really, the, to the naked eye, not perceptible colors that are out beyond brick. And potentially, at an individual level, also almost no clinical impact, potentially. Well, the questions of penetrance seem to arise there, just as the, the hemochromatotic, who never lives in Argentina, may never develop iron overload. As the, it all depends on the availability of uh, other triggers in the environment. Exactly. So this would be, I would view this as part of the, the puzzle of multifactorial liver disease in adulthood. Um, at least my understanding of things like common uh, liver diseases, like alcohol-related liver disease and fatty liver disease in adulthood, it is a combination of exposure and multiple common genetic variants. Things like the variant in PMPLA3 is very well described. Um, now, the magnitude of effect of the variants that we've found in this study is much, much smaller than the size of those in PMPLA3, but I think still of relevance, and certainly the statistics behind it would suggest that it is a true effect. What are we going to be able to do with this information on a clinical basis? It sounds... Well, it's, it sounds as though it's exceedingly interesting, but not likely to affect day-to-day -day patient care. Not yet. Not yet. I suppose there's two main ways where I think it's important. The first is the conceptual idea that genes that are implicated in monogenic disease are important even uh, in adults, and therefore um, are a good... This is a prompt to encourage basic science research into those pathways, into these genes. For example, we're talking about a very modest change in the function or the abundance of one of these proteins. So if one could be pharmacologically targeted, could it then be of benefit to patients with primary sclerosis and cholangitis, for example? The second way that um, this may be of relevance is for polygenic gene risk scores. So that's where, for example, when we're talking about additive effects of multiple small triggers to build up to a picture of severe liver disease, are we able to get to the point where we're assessing many, many genes in an individual, adding up all their potential risk factors, and then saying, well, you're in a higher risk category for developing, let's say, alcohol-related cirrhosis, and therefore um, you need more close monitoring or more close monitoring for liver cancer. Both of those are some time off, though. Well, I could, I could foresee a brilliant future, a very lucrative future for you, as a consultant to the insurance industry. That is, if you allow yourself to be assessed in this manner, that you might wind up being tagged as a, we don't want to insure her, we don't want to insure him. Um, that's certainly a possibility in the United States. The NHS, maybe not so much, but uh, it's all going to be privatized anyway, isn't it? Uh, I couldn't possibly comment. Um, <laughs> I think the predictive power of these variants, even the strongest variants, such as those in PMPLA3, is actually really limited. So 
people have done a lot of work on looking at the several of those and because the actual incidence of developing a clinical liver outcome like needing liver transplant out of everyone with common liver diseases like fatty liver disease because the incidence of an outcome is so low um, there is very little predictive power but theoretically and in a large enough population you can generate a small p-value it's given a large enough population well i reckon that's true for all manner of statistical studies it sounds to me as if we're starting to approach a sort of dilution of our traditional understanding of disease, monogenic disease, as a phenomenon, that we're moving away from disorders painted in bright, high-intensity, high-saturation primary colors, and much as with PFIC, and then brick, and then things that are exposed to things that are manifested only with frank external triggers, such as um, shifts in hormonal milieu induced by contraceptive agents. Now we're moving into the pastels. Oh, is that how you see it? I think that's exactly how, across a whole range of fields outside of gastrohepatology, many monogenic disorders are now showing that when you look for much modest protein impact on, from different gene variants, you get a different, typically more subtle clinical phenotype. Uh, there was other data presented this morning from the team at King's showing that heterozygotes with um, uh, heterozygotes for novel MDR3 mutations show a uh, specific phenotype of a cholangiopathy, um, which we're just starting to understand. So I think that both within the liver field and more broadly, you're exactly right. We're, there is the well-defined monogenic diseases, um, but then the closer you look and the harder you search, then you will find shades of gray elsewhere. Mm. I've sent my patients sample off for exomic or genomic sequencing. And I get back a printout that lists any number of variants of unknown significance in this, that, and the other gene. And it's a, it's a list as long as my forearm. What do I and my genetic counseling team do with this information in light of what you've discovered? The general advice, certainly where I work, is that the result coming back to you should be carefully screened and carefully controlled before it lands on your desk. Because exactly when you have a long list of um, variants of uncertain significance and possibly pathogenic mutations, it's hard to know how to counsel someone. So certainly all the variants that I've identified in this study should hopefully not come back on a uh, screen that's been sent for clinical purposes. They're ones that you can identify if you search for them or look them up, but they're almost all recognized as being benign. So... Wait a minute, wait a minute. They're recognized as being benign. You're saying... Uh, 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 <clears throat> you're coughing in the background and saying, maybe they're not so benign. 
benign from the perspective of is this causing um, this baby to have infantile cholestasis um, that they do not cause a monogenic form of cholangiopathy, for example, or a monogenic form of liver failure, um, but they may shift your ALT by one or two units as an adult. Okay. Depends how you define benign. Always the case. I'm sure that the people who are plagued by itch during their brick episodes would say this disorder is anything but benign. What would you like our listeners to take away from the material that you've presented? How do you counsel them to understand the implications of this work? The most important message I would say is that conceptually, rare disease is important. It's important for several reasons, but firstly, there, even though there's very few individual patients with um, each rare disease, collectively rare diseases are common, and this study has shown that those genes are important even in other common diseases or those people who don't have the rare disease. So we should pay close attention to our patients who have rare disease and the research that's going on in rare disease and continue to fund it. <laughs> it all comes down to the Benjamins, doesn't it? Well, more or less. Ah, I was intrigued by your observation that the associations with Variation in particular biomarkers, in particular, say, gamma GT, were associated with cholestatic disorders. That ABCB11 variants were associated with problems in gamma GT. That struck me as just a bit counterintuitive, only because one of the hallmarks of pediatric liver disease that uh, I understand is that ABCV11 variants are associated with normal range gamma GT values. Um, I'm not a statistician, but tell me exactly how you picked that particular, uh, how, how that particular correlation was established. Is it that the gamma GT is too low in these patients? Maybe you don't know that yet, but tell me. Correct. So... It is down to the individual variant, and uh, there's, we've studied 77 genes here, and within that, um, a large number of individual variants are popped up as being significant. So we do need to kind of drill down into the data. Um, to, as you know, the devil is always in the detail. But for the ones which I remember off the top of my head, such as this variant in uh, ABCB11, and there's another one in ATP8B1, um, there is a subtle lower gamma GT in these individuals with these variants. So that would potentially fit in the context of um, children who have low gamma GT cholestasis. We're maybe seeing an ever so slightly lower gamma GT in these adults. Thank you for that. That lets me settle back a little bit more contentedly. In, in my attempts to understand exactly what you found and how you interpret it. Well, as usual at this juncture in the uh, podcast recording, Selma Ertel, our producer, has given me the high sign. It's time to say goodbye. 
And as usual in these podcasts, we ask the person being interviewed to name for us something that we can play as a bit of music with which to conclude the podcast that that will speak not just to our audience, but has also spoken to him or her. Have you got a song or an instrumental snatch of music for us? Well, yes. So last time we spoke, I was based in Cambridge, and now I've come back to Birmingham where I started my medical training. And if there's one song that reminds me of Birmingham, it would certainly be Mr. Brightside by The Killers. So I'd be very grateful if you could play a little snapshot of that, please. You're talking to an old man, and I have no idea who the killers are. <laughs> I've never heard Mr. Brightside, so now I'm, now I'm intrigued. To listen to the song in full length, please check out our Espigan playlist. Jake, I'm not sure that I share your tastes in music, but it was interesting to listen to. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, um, thanks very much for, for giving me the time and, and for having a nice chat this afternoon. <laughs>